0: Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 135. Hey, Albert. Hey, what? I just finished playing Nemo's
1: War. Had a great story, one with a lot of depth.
2: <laughs> Alright,
0: hello, everybody! Welcome back! Welcome back,
1: Albert. Did you survive the darkening of the oh, world? Oh, I did.
0: It was so awesome. Oh, my gosh. That was the best thing ever. It really was. How how did you enjoy the darkening of the world?
1: Also known as the mm-hmm. solar eclipse. Um, It was pretty good. I enjoyed it. We went out to, to the zoo to see how the animals would react to the solar eclipse. Did they notice? They Some of them noticed. Uh, all of them decided it was time for dinner
0: because it was dark. <laughs> That's yeah. So so where I met in Greenville, we had totality, right? And I saw it for for about two minutes, and that was pretty neat. You know, we're we're there, and we went to a picnic at my wife's job. She was actually working during the eclipse. She was doing an eclipse event, and so we, <laughs> so you know they had the the stadium open, and and there's a free show, and there's a scientist talking all that. And during the eclipse, everybody was there and cheering. Apparently, it was amazing. We went to the other end of the school. And hung out at this at the auditorium, which is a big field. And we had a picnic and stuff, and then it, you know, played some games. And then it got really dark, and it was just super cool. You know, we had totality for about two minutes, so the the sky got dark. We saw a few stars here and there, and the horizon was sunset. You could hear all the animals and or squirrels, not squirrels. I'm saying the the bugs that went out chirping and all that. It was just really neat. <laughs> and my poor kids, about two minutes. After, no. Yeah, but 2 minutes after it was over and and the the totality had ended and it started getting light again, I turned to them and said, "Well, kids, summer's over. School starts tomorrow." <laughs> and they hated that. And they hated that. That's <laughs>
2: rude. <laughs>
0: it was it was worth it. Yeah, cuz you know, this it was a pretty neat way to to end your summer break with an eclipse and then back to school. I never had did anything like that growing up. That would've been awesome. <laughs> But yeah, it, it was pretty darn neat. I am so glad to have been a part of it. I just think you'll get to do another one about seven years. Yeah, but that's not going to come around here so much. It is going to go through upstate New York, apparently, um, where my wife grew up. So we'll probably go there for vacation that one. And see another totality. That'd be nice. Yep, yep. Pretty exciting. All right, do we have any games to talk about? I mentioned we played games during the clips, but they weren't even solitaire games.
1: You were playing games during well, the actual no, eclipse?
0: No, during before the eclipse. We got there around eleven, and we played game. We had a picnic. We ate, and then we played a few board games. We played Set. I played chess against my son, and I think we played something else.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I actually have uh, been playing a couple of games. One of them I wanted to mention because it's a pretty small game, so I don't know if it'd ever get up for a full review. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Yeah, Okie Dokie, that's the name of the game, (laughs) O-K-E-Y, D-O-K-E-Y, Okie Dokie, Um, from Tasty Minstrel Game. It's a small box game, and the idea of the game, it's pretty abstract, but you are organizing, according to the theme, you're organizing a group of musician animals that have to get, and you have to get them all in tune, totally abstract. The real point of the game is that you have a hand of cards, which is constantly refreshing from a shrinking deck, and you have to play those cards out into five rows where each of them have restrictions on placement. So every card you do, you have to finish off a full column before you do the next column. You can only play in the same color as previous ones, so you have each row as its own color. You have to do in ascending numbers, and each row... Each column, excuse me, have to has to have only one, one and only one reset card played into it, which resets it back to zero for increasing in numbers. Um, so it's just got it, very abstract. You have cards, you put them out, and in, in specific rules about where you can put the cards. And if you can finish off all ten rows, all ten columns, then you win the game. And playing it, by the way, multiplayer. I keep confusing. I keep saying. Columns and rows incorrectly, also when I actually play it, because you can hear me saying it now. And it's totally confusing to people. I
2: apologize (laughs) to anybody who's played with me.
0: Okay, so you actually may be setting up the cards in rows, not columns or or, or something, but that's okay.
1: No, you, you you set them up, and each row will be its own color, and you have to finish off a whole column before you go to the next column.
0: Okay. I think I got it.
1: So. And so there are placement rules about how you put them out. Um, and it's a co-op game. Solo, it is a co-op game. Um, when you're playing multiplayer, so everyone has their own hand and it's limited information about what you can tell other people. You can't tell them what the numbers in your hand. So when it's solo, you just don't play with other people, and the only limited information is you have no idea what the deck is going to give you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So just a bit more reduces
1: better. the frustration of trying to deal with people who do not think strategically. Okay, <laughs> playing with my seven-year-old daughter. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I tried playing Hanabi with my kids once, and that lasted for about two minutes. Then we all gave up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, she was relatively good with it. She actually enjoyed playing with it. She kind of got it, I think. Although she did make a couple errors in play. Like, for example, after a 1, you want to play a 2, or as close to a 2 as possible. And after a reset, you want to play a 1. Whereas she would do things like play a reset... And then, oh, I only have one card of this color, so I'll play it. It's a seven. Like, oh,
0: <laughs> no, not right. Yeah, that, that's challenging. <laughs> but it sounds fun. It's, and it sounds like sort of like Kanabi then. Um, uh, sort of like Kanabi, okay.
1: except that you don't have that. You, oh, you only see everyone else's hand type thing. Yeah. You actually can work together with everyone else.
0: Okay. Oh, that's interesting. And it's one of those small TMG boxes. Okay. Hmm. I like games in that size.
1: I don't know. It's actually tinier than than I'm used to. It's not. It's smaller than, say, Harbor.
0: Oh really? Is it like just a, a deck yeah. of cards size box? then?
1: Um. It's two half deck of size cards. So imagine two thirty size, two two thirty card size decks, um, next to each other, and it's about that tall.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha.
1: So I don't know why they keep coming up with different size small boxes because they could have just used the harbor size box and that would have fit on my shelf easier. It's a a different small size.
0: Mm -hmm. See, that drives me crazy. I hate when games come in different sizes. They just need to standardize every game to be exactly the same. That would be awesome, but I don't think it's going to happen. (laughs) Actually, at my game store, they they joke about that because I'll show up and they say, Albert, look, this game came in your size. <laughs> and you know, and they were like, "Ooh, that's a nice box. It's perfect size. It'll go on my shelf."
1: <laughs> I've seen some people who have redone their whole board game collection of reboxing all of their boxes into standard size boxes. Oh wow! So that they did everything. They threw away all their original ones. They got small plastic bins for all of their games every last one of them and so now they all just stack in their own plastic bins like that 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 is a
0: step farther (laughs) i could take even even i won't go that far what i did is i (laughs) built a bookshelf and then i just adjusted the the sizes of each shelf for for the boxes but you know and i keep all the games of one size together and all the games of another size together
1: (laughs) does that work not all of us quite as crafty as you
0: Anyway, we, we should keep moving because this is a big episode, right? We've got, a, we've got an interview, and then we'll be talking about Nemo's War, which I want to keep calling Finding Nemo. <laughs> but it isn't Finding An
1: me. interview, you say? An interview,
0: yes. An, in, an interview, yes. I talked with uh, David Thompson. Um, he he uh, designed a couple games that were in print and play contests, and, and he's designed a few other games, including uh, Pavlov's House, which is on Kickstarter right now. Pavlov's Dogs? No, the house, the whole house, not just the dog.
1: The dog stay in the house. Uh, Is it a dog house? It,
0: no, it's a house house. What? Let's hear the interview and find out. All right, today I am talking to David Thompson, a uh, designer of a, a few games. Um. Winner of a print-and-play contest or two, is that right, David?
3: Yeah, um, yeah, a couple of different things. A couple of years ago, it was a two-player contest that I did well in, and then last year in the uh, War Game Contest, Castle Litter was, was a popular entry, and then this year with Pavlovs House. So I think it was second place overall, and it was first place for a few different... Um, wow, few okay. That's
0: very cool. All right, and so we're talking to you today because you have a game on Kickstarter right now. Pavlov's house so so before we get into that game because I do want to hear a lot about that let's find out about you first um just so listeners know who you are um let's start with your gaming background I saw uh, I noticed in BGG there's pictures of you gaming with your dad and your kids I mean were you gaming with your dad when you're young
3: yeah no not at all I have have no recollection really of playing games with my with my dad and really my parents at all I mean we had the typical mass-market games that every kid grows up with. Um, I vaguely, maybe remember some Clue, possibly something like that, but uh, I really didn't start getting into games until maybe like middle school, junior high age, um, when I discovered both D and D and then games like HeroQuest. So still mass market, but you know that that was sort of the entry into gaming. Um, and then I mean it wasn't a long time, but it was still quite a ways before I discovered. Um, hobby board games, right? So I played, I was big into D D uh growing up. I stayed with it, you know, high school into um adulthood. But it wasn't until uh I got married and had kids and started not having the time you really want to invest in D D. Um and it was at that same time that I was starting to to work on an early design for a game that was based on sort of this mixture of D D and Final Fantasy tactics, the the computer game, Mage night, And I'm not talking the board game. I'm talking the old school clicks oh, game, yeah. that pre, you know, predated Hero Clicks. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had no, no background in board games at all. And I'm sitting here trying to make this game, um, which ultimately led me to finding Board Game Geek and discovering, you know, modern board games as we, you know, as, as everybody listening knows them. So it was a sort of a long winding path to get to, you know, my interests in, in hobby board games.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, you mentioned you were designing games before board game geek and seeing like all the different hobby games. Did that really change your design styles after that? You think? D- do you think it was good not knowing what was out there?
3: It was well. It was interesting because at the time, so we're talking mid two thousands is, is the time period, and so what I what I ultimately was ending up with was this uh, sort of hybrid minis board game, which really there wasn't much like that at the time. You know there was games like Blood Bowl were the the closest kind of thing, right? And so now there's a million of them. You know, there's like probably 20 on Kickstarter right now. Um, but at the time, there wasn't really anything to base it on. And so I was I was desperately googling games like Necromunda was kind of like it or Warhammer, yeah. you know, those kind of games if you if you're familiar with them, but none of it really was similar. And so um, I really struggled to find the sort of influences. And I don't, I think, you know, the game Ultimately, it's a game called uh, Skirmish Tactics Apocalypse, which Mage Company has signed uh, and is in development now. And so it's changed a lot over the years because of of influences since I've discovered Board Game Geek. But yeah, it was definitely different. It was absolutely an eye-opener for me.
0: Wow, okay. So that game's had a a long, winding path, has (laughs) not
3: it? Yeah, it's a very, very long, winding path, yeah. And I mean, ultimately, really what can... I can draw a pretty direct link between it and the board game geek community because I I posted my first ever post on board game geek was about that game in the design forums, asking for it, play testers. And I mean, from, you know, that was 2011. And from then on, it's been, you know, sort of a love affair with, with the board game geek community.
0: All right. So we just switched. I just switched my mic because I realized I had made a a guffaw, which, and that's funny because I just, corrected david about making sure he had the right one and made all a big deal about it and and anyway i'm using the wrong one so we're back and hopefully i sound better um anyway you're talking about your designing games and your your minis game you've made a lot of different games right i mean what what kind of games do you like you've got war games you got train games euros minis
3: yeah you know it's it's funny i mean i the games I design don't necessarily align to to my favorite kind of game. So so my favorite to play games are, some people call them Waros. It's it's the hybrid war game Euros, right? So games like 13 Days or Quartermaster General, those are my favorite games to play. Um, for designing, it's, it's a little bit different. It depends on if I'm a designing a game, game solo or if I'm co-designing. So co-designing can go all over the place, depending on who, who conceived the original idea. If I'm Designing solo, I like to do games that are ultimately wind up like um, Pavlov's House or Castle Litter, so relatively light war games that have some Euro influences.
0: I see. Okay. All right. So, as a gamer, what do you look for in a solo game?
3: Uh. Hmm. So here's a so a little dirty secret. I don't play a lot of solo games, <laughs> which is kind of okay. funny, right? So I do play some. Um, it, the main thing it can't feel like a puzzle, right? So, and I probably won't earn a lot of friends saying this either, but say a game like um, Pandemic. If you play Pandemic solo, after a while, you kind of feel like you solve it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, yep. Um, you get into a, sort of a, a groove, and and I don't like that. It needs to have enough uncertainty, and which, you, and usually that's going to be, you know, randomness will be the way you achieve that uh, to feel like you're playing against an opponent versus a puzzle that you have to solve. So that's the most important thing. Uh, and the other thing, it has to be difficult, right? And this is sort of the, the a constant thing you hear about solo games. You need to probably lose more than you win um, just to stay engaged with the game. And you need to be able to sit, feel a, a sense of progression in the difficulty.
0: Mm-hmm, yep, that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I get what you're saying about the not a, not a logic puzzle. I mean, sometimes I'm in the mood for those. Sometimes I'm in the mood more for, for a story, really. And, and right. you get that more with the randomness where, where it's less predictable. Yeah. When you're designing a game, how do you choose your topics? Are you like starting with the mechanics first or the idea first or how does that go?
3: Yeah. So that's a good question. I mean, there's a, a common question that you'll hear people ask about what comes first, the, the themes mm-hmm. or the mechanics. And, and I am definitely a theme first guy. Now, a, a, on occasion, um, I'll do a co-design where I might be working with a designer who had a mechanic it was really good and they sort of conceived maybe they conceived the mechanic we work our theme around it um, or they came up with the mechanic and the theme and then we work together I, I, that's that, that never happens with me so I, I usually find something I'm interested in from a from a theme perspective and then I'll build the game from the ground up around that theme. I see okay. Um, so usually, so my experience, and this is, this is sort of just a little bit of background on how I got to, to do this whole co-designing thing, because I think it's a little bit interesting for people that might be into that sort of thing. Um, when I moved from the U.S. to the U.K., so I moved to the U.K. in 2014. So it was a few years after I'd started getting into board games, and it was right around the time that I was really ready to start pitching games. Um, I moved from the U.S. to Cam- to near Cambridge in the U.K., and there's an awesome board game designer meetup here. So it's got some established designers, guys that have you know tons of games published, and it's ultimately designed to bring your game and, and play with other designers and get feedback. But what winds up happening is you have all these sort of um, bonds that develop between designers, which ultimately turn into a bunch of co-designs. So that's, that's how the relationships have started. Now, as far as to answer your question, you, you can try to say, hey, let's design a game together. And you sit down and you start batting your ideas and you try to do this sort of 50-50 split about how the game um, comes about. I haven't had a lot of success there. The, the most success I've had is that one of the two people will say, hey, I've got an idea. This is my idea. Let's work on it together. And it probably helps for them to have something fleshed out enough to, that's almost playable right at the beginning. Just so you have some common ground to start from, because otherwise you just spend so much time spinning your wheels to to get started. That that's my personal experience anyway.
0: I see. Okay. And and you're designing with uh, other local designers, or you're doing this with people, you know, around the world.
3: So uh, no, so it's all local right now. So it's all part of the the Cambridge group. So uh, a couple of different guys that that I've met there, I've designed a few games with. Um, so so it's all local for now. Though when I move, I'll probably can stay in touch with them using things like um, Skype and Tabletop Simulator. So even though we're local, I wind up spending, doing most of my play testing on um, Tabletop Simulator. And that's just because one of the co-designers is is also a dad and we have little kids. So it's much easier to jump on and do that online than it is in person. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When you have kids, it's hard to to get together sometimes. You meet once every three months or something, right? Right. That's right. They they really change things. Um, Having kids changes things. So, (laughs) <laughs> so do you have a favorite mechanic you like to use no
3: not really so i mean it's like you mentioned a lot of my designs have been all over the place thematically and the same is true mechanically i mean um there's obviously a lot of overlap between castle litter and pavlov's house and that's because pavlov's house is essentially a sequel and an expansion so there's, there's overlap there but otherwise it, it kind of runs the gamut. Um, I've tried all sorts of different mechanics. Whatever's, whatever really helps evoke the theme at the time is what I will ultimately land with.
0: So that's really just sort of like picking the the right medium to convey the message.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: All right, so I've noticed at least two of your games were on contests, right? You mentioned that earlier. Um, a design contest on BGG. So, so what motivated you enter the contests?
3: Yeah, so actually um, the first... I think the first one I was ever in was a two-player design contest, and this is maybe 2012 or so. Um, And that was my game, Skirmish Tactics, that I had mentioned before, my my first ever game. Um, But it wasn't actually – I had designed it before the contest started, so it wasn't actually allowed to be in that contest, I think. So it was like a condition that it could be in it from a pre-design phase or whatever. The main one I was first in was the following year there was a two-player contest – And my game, um, Quest for the Open Tavern, won that year. So it was like 2013 or something like that for the BGG two-player contest. And it was really um, just the challenge of, hey, there's a contest. This sounds really cool. Let me see if I can make a two-player game that sounds fun. And the the sort of funny thing about that was it was the generic write-up for how – the contest entries were supposed to be formatted. Was the where I got the inspiration for the game? So I just kind of it was a riff off of the entry for the contest. <laughs> so yeah, but but I mean honestly, uh, now the reason I use it so much, and I, I don't post a lot of my designs, my um, co designs, I don't post those on Board Game Geek because I don't feel comfortable posting stuff that I'm doing with other people. It's just my solo work. Um, but I posted there for, for playtest feedback because you'd get a lot of really good um, playtesters coming into the design contest. They'll download your stuff and give you good good solid feedback.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, are you finding uh, people are still printing stuff a lot or are you, are you finding people are wanting to use like Tabletop Simulator a lot more?
3: There is a good amount of people that use Tabletop Simulator. But I would still say that the most of the people that are at least active on BoardGameGeek the majority of those people are printing them off and, and playing it. At least the ones that are providing me good feedback. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, now if you go on a tabletop simulator, you look at the number of downloads and subscribers. It's it's huge, but you have no idea if those people just subscribe and look at it and then move on. You know, you're just you're not getting a ton of feedback that way.
0: And so, if they download it that way, they don't necessarily know that you're looking for feedback even.
3: That's right. Yeah, I'll usually put in the comments, "Hey, you know." This is a playtest version. I'm looking for feedback, etc. Um, but that there's no guarantee they even read the comments.
0: And I guess that makes sense because you, you think, like you're saying, a person in PGG is a is knows that somebody contest He's looking at it because it's in a contest, and and he knows how these contests work. That feedback is really helpful. And, yeah, and so it's kind yeah of I think a so. Mindset, yeah. Okay. Julius, was uh, at, I mentioned I was going to interview you. and He wasn't able to make it. Honestly, I, I didn't really invite him to the interview. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but um, he, uh, he was mentioning that he wanted to hear your views on, on um, designers going from PMP to published games. Because um, you know, there's a lot of really good uh, PMP games out there. Some Many of them in contests. And it seems that a lot of these games are just not making the jump from print and play to design published, to published game. Um, what does it take? What does a designer need to do to get published?
3: Yes, yeah, so that's a good question. And I mean, I'm assuming that you were talking not self-publishing, right? Not meaning not go to Kickstarter yourself and publish. You mean actually get it published by um, a, a publisher? Yeah, you're right. right? I, I, you know, and right. a
0: person can do that whole Kickstarter thing. I think that's very daunting and and probably right. scarier than just going to publisher and letting them do all that.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I don't think. Honestly, I don't think there's a lot of difference between um, – whether I don't think it makes a lot of difference whether or not you do a P&P for the publication process. Meaning you're not really gaining a whole lot or losing a whole lot if you don't have an active P&P presence on, on BoardGameGeek or wherever. Now, um, what you do gain – we already discussed this – is you get a lot of really good playtest feedback. So if you're not using BoardGameGeek or something like that um, to solicit feedback, you better have a good blind playtest community built up to support you. Um, but here's where, here's where it's really a, tr- a problem. So before I moved to the UK, I had no idea how to pitch a game. I didn't know about going to conventions. I didn't know how to approach publishers. I didn't know any of that stuff. So the most important thing for people that make a print and play game is to still get into that community and that sense of um, just the entire, the entire pitching process. So basically, you can make the best print and play game in the, in the world, put it on BoardGameGeek, and until you understand that process, it's not going to really matter. It's not going to open a lot of doors. Um, now, I will say, I'll add one caveat to that. So the war I have found personally that the war game community is, is just much smaller, right? It's a much smaller uh, community. And there is, I have personally experienced, there's a little bit of a difference where if you put up print and play game on Board of Game Geek, and it's really well received and it's well presented, um, I've had a couple of publishers who have approached me about the print and play game and publishing it, which is completely different than my experience with other types of games.
0: Okay. And, and is somebody not really in, involved in the designing aspect of it all? That that makes sense because it seems from the outside that, the the like you're saying, it's much smaller community and, and the publishers and gamers and designers are all able to, to mingle more easily and more freely there with something like Euro games where it's much larger and really more mass market.
3: Right. That's exactly right. So, so my first published game was with queen, right? So there's no, you're never going to see me put up a print and play game on board game geek. Somebody see it and somebody go to queen and say, Hey, there's a great PNP game. You should check it out. That's just not going to happen. That's, that's, you know, ludicrous. But in the, in the war game world, that's absolutely a thing, right? A person sees a game on, on board game geek and they know, you know, Alan at Victory Point Games, or, or, you, you know, whatever, and they go, hey, because they know him as a friend. This is awesome game. You should check it out. And it, and he would do it. So it's just a different. It's a, the, just a different community.
0: I see. Okay. So so how did it work for you? If you can say, um, going from print and play to game published, you're you're taking your games to the designers, or, or they came to you, I mean, to the publishers. Right to the publishers.
3: Yeah. yeah. So it's different. Um. So it's with. Uh, so with Castle Itter, it worked just like I said. So somebody reached out to Alan, um, and he contacted me, and he said, hey, I've seen this game. This looks like a good fit. Now, if you are familiar with Castle Itter, and we can talk about this later on, I think, it it has a visual similarity to some of the states of Siege games. And so what, what happened while that game was in the, um, the war game, design contest, is multiple people saw that, and of course they're going to reach out to Victory Point Games and say, hey, this game looks great, I'm really interested, it looks like Stage of Siege, Um, and ultimately that results in Alan reaching out to me. Now, that's different from Pavlov's house. So Pavlov's house I took to um, UK Games Expo this past year, and I was getting some um, playtest feedback. And... There's a series of events that ultimately led me to reaching out to um, Dan Verson with DVG about getting it published. And he took a look at it and he liked it. So that was a much more traditional pitch to a publisher. So it just goes both ways. Yeah.
0: You know, I'll say a bit I'm a little surprised that it's a DVG game. It it looks different from their other stuff, It, it doesn't seem like the same style of game
3: yeah that's that is so it's interesting when i decided to pitch to to dvg i mean so you've got a couple of obvious pitches right i mean you, it wouldn't be surprising to see it picked up by victory point um i i when i went to dan the reason i went to him is because he's got some background in solo games right even though the mm-hmm. game sort of, sort of superficially or like you said it doesn't look like a uh, a dvg game um and i think what drew dan to the game was it was a did it was different than some of the stuff he had put out before I think that was a draw for him and he's based on the success of of the game so if it is successful I think it may lead to some additional games in the line uh, as we move forward
0: nice okay that'd be cool yeah e- even though I do say it doesn't look like a DVG game at the same time I'm saying that on the other hand I'm realizing that they do publish a lot of the games that don't look like DVG games (laughs) so it isn't a stretch but but it isn't it's still not expected (laughs) so since we're talking about castle can can you tell me more about that game i'm especially interested in the history portion of it can you tell me about castle it the backstory behind that game
3: you know earlier we talked about um when i first came to the bgg community i was primarily active in the design forums and over time that the design forms is much, much more difficult to get good quality playtest feedback because it's largely turned into a, there's just a lot of conversation about Kickstarters and stuff. And I find it difficult to really get good, meaningful feedback there. But what I did stumble into, and this is maybe a few years ago is the war game sub forums and BGG is just unbelievable. It's just an awesome, fantastic community. And I was working on a game, um, called, uh, platoon command when i when i just discovered that community and it was that that period where they had their first ever hey we're going to have a board game design contest and i looked at that and i you know i was at the time i was reading about western theater world war ii and reading about this story about um castle litter so that's how I you know, originally designed it. It was a combination of looking for an interesting design for the contest and reading about the, the backstory. So for people that don't know, Castle Litter um, was a castle in Austria where the Germans had put their top French political prisoners. And so this is the very, very end of um, the war in, in Europe and uh, Hitler's, killed himself, but the war is not officially over. And the U S is, is in Austria at this point, And the Wehrmacht has basically given up. So this SS controlled prison, um, it's, this is a convoluted story, but ultimately what winds up happening is there is a, a person in a German in the prison who escapes, joins up with some Americans, brings the Americans back who join up with some marks so some regular German soldiers. So now they've teamed up. They get back to the prison, and they defend the prison against SS. So it's the only time in World War II where you have Americans and Germans fighting together. And so they're defending the castle from SS assaults.
2: Wow, okay. And this takes
3: – yeah, so it takes place over the course of, you know, like a, basically a day. And so you you actually – during the combat, you actually have Americans, Germans – some French uh, prisoners and an Austrian resistance fighter, all working together to to defend the castle.
0: Wow. Okay, that that's pretty neat. So, y- a couple questions. You mentioned it happened after Hitler died, before the end of the war. That was that was a really short period of time, right? Like yeah, a few it's, days like, it's a like a week. Yeah,
3: it's like a week. It's like a week. Wow, yeah, okay. I think. Yeah.
0: Okay. And any the other question: When I saw Castle it immediately reminded me of the video game Castle Wolfenstein. Are are those two places related? Like is Wolfenstein based on this or something? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm not... Yeah, I don't know that. Okay. I remember that was a game where you're in a castle and you're trying to escape and it's guarded by Nazis. It was a video game right from the eighty or from the 90s.
3: Yeah, I remember the video. I never played it, so I'm not sure. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Um, and so this is going to be published by Victory Point Games. I already picked it up. Do you know if they're adding a multiplayer option or is it too early to talk about any of this stuff?
3: No. So, um we're just going to keep it completely solitaire okay yeah so yeah it's, it's unlike yeah and it's unlike pavel's house like so if you compare them castle itter is a purely tactical level game and it really focuses specifically on the the solitaire experience of defending the castle right which is very much different if you look at pavel's house which is derived from it but expands on it and that's the the multiplayer aspect
0: yeah okay and then the last question about castle itter when's it going to be available so
3: we're still very much in development, and so no no, date for that. Got it, okay.
0: Um, and that's interesting because cause I, I guess in my mind I had imagined that when a game comes out of the contest, uh, if it does well, it's already going to be gone through a lot of design, and it's basically ready to publish. But I guess that's not always the case. Um, maybe yeah. he wants to change it around or something.
3: Yeah, so, yeah, it's, so keep in mind, too, that while like around the time that it was signed by Victory Point and, and up through now, they've been in a physical move. Oh, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> That's right. so, yeah, so I've been working with a couple of different developers in addition to Alan. So um, you're right. I mean, Victory Point, they, they want to definitely do their due diligence in the development process to make it the best game possible. So b- basically we're just um, taking it kind of slow, but slow but steady, I guess we'd say.
0: Yeah, okay. And, and I guess it makes sense in that maybe – Maybe the game that you pick up a game as a publisher, it is it is well designed. It's a complete game. It's fun and playable, but it's not exactly the type of game you publish, and so you want to make it fit your your company's uh, style better. So, so you may want to redesign a little bit. I see. Okay, that's interesting. Um, all that stuff is interesting. It, it's something I know nothing about. Um, but let's let's talk about Pavlov's House now, because really that's why we're here today. This game is on Kickstarter right now. Just came out on Kickstarter, what, three, four days ago, I think, today from today. Um, and it's already uh, funded and, and hit the stretch goals. So, so that's pretty cool. Uh, tell us about this game.
3: Yeah, so, you know, we've talked about it a little bit. It's It was essentially, it started as the successor to Castle Litter. So, you know, Castle Litter was well-received in the first contest. So, it you know, at the same time I was finishing up the design on it, I wanted, what was the next in the series going to be? How can I kind of push the... system in a new direction. And so I entered it in the the subsequent contest. Um, A lot more research went into Pavlov's house. So for Castle Litter, it's a self-contained event. It took a day. You know, there's a lot of English language um, literature to to draw from. It's not sort of shrouded in myth. And that's the exact opposite of Pavlov's house. So we're talking about something that that took, you know, a couple of months. Um, There's a ton of Soviet propaganda that you have to kind of get through. There's really bad sort of circular Western reporting that doesn't help. And so, it, you know, it was months and months and months of research to get Paulo's Haas even started. Um, and so ultimately what happened is the design was going to start much more similar to Castle Litter. It was just going to be this tactical defense of a single building over the course of a couple of months. And throughout the design process, what I realized is, hey, it wasn't just – bunch of guys in a building defending it, like it was in Castle Litter. This is the entire, you know, supported by all different elements of the Soviet army that was fighting for Stalingrad. And so as I started adding these higher level, these operational level elements to the game, it became obvious that I was going to have to to change the scale and the scope to incorporate that, which then kind of led to how it became not only just a solitaire game, but you can play it two-player co-op. So... You can have one player playing the tactical defense of the building and you have another player playing the operational level, you know, all the elements in Stalingrad that are supporting the defense of the house but not actually physically there.
2: Uh,
0: so it's – not only is it cooperative but it's asymmetrical cooperative. Super, super asymmetric.
3: Wow, so it's cool. – it's yeah, it is it is unlike – you know so games like um, Days of Hour which I love, right? It's a great cooperative experience but you're largely doing the same kinds of stuff. This is hyper asymmetric. So you have one guy who all the operational actions are these card driven action selection mechanisms where you're just doing um, managing resources, that kind of stuff. And then the tactical defense is much more um, selecting actions for these tactical units to, for all the combat. So it's a lot more dice rolling, a lot more randomness. So it's two very, very different feel um, experiences.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. So, talking about co-op games, um, have you noticed any uh, resistance from from war game community and co-ops? I mean, I, I've just seen there's a lot more co-ops lately that are war games, and to me, that's very, very different. I guess.
3: Yeah. No. So not at all. So now, if, so it helps that there's that this is essentially at its core was designed from the ground up as a solitaire game, right? So it's not it's not a, a co-op game or a competitive game that has a solitaire variant. So I think that no matter what, even if somebody didn't like a co-op, it's easy to just kind of dismiss that and say, well, it's a solitaire game, so I don't really care. Um, but I have had no, nothing but sort of positive responses about it having the cooperative element to it.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, because every time I see a co-op war game, I think, Oh, that looks really cool. That just sounds awesome. I haven't tried any yet, actually, surprisingly.
3: Yeah, and so I mean like I said, you know, you've got games like days of fire, which is, you, you can play competitively or uh, just a pure co-op. Um, but I agree. I mean, my favorite games, like I mentioned, um, other than 13 days, which is just a two player, but like quartermaster general and the, um, Academy games or birth of America series games they, you know, that it's not, those aren't co-ops, those are team games, but that's my favorite kind of games to play. So just, just the camaraderie of, you know, being on a team.
0: Yeah. That that makes sense. That's cool. The um, so, so more about uh Pavlov's house. Uh, like, how long does the gameplay last?
3: So it's sixty to seventy-five minutes. Um, I mean, almost every game that I play clocks in right around sixty minutes. But over time, I took all the playtest feedback, and they were consistently sixty to seventy-five.
0: Okay, that's not, that's not a bad amount of time. And so I guess you you've tuned this to be a little bit challenging.
3: Yeah. um, So there's different levels. Yeah, there's different levels of of difficulty, of course. Um, So you can the game plays the same, but you can add a set of what's called tactics cards to the German assault. So there is an element of the game. You know, I talked about the two different parts of the Soviet style that the the players are playing in solitaire or um, cooperative. But the way you're you're being attacked is this deck of German cards that is driving the A.I., to sort of a constant assault, and that's where, you know, some people have said it, it looks similar to the states of siege games in that regard, where you have the Germans who are moving across um, four different tracks at the at the building, and so there's a deck of those cards that are are driving the game towards um, that constant tension, and you can add a set of what's what you know what I've called tactics cards, and that's what drives up the difficulty. So you can choose the different level. Um, and then there's a separate sort of variant that we've added. It's a third player variant where you can actually make it uh, a competitive game. So you can have a player controlling the Germans um, using those cards and it assigning which of those cards they want to use.
0: Oh, cool! Okay, very nice. the um, The board is in th- is there's three parts to the board. Is is that right? Like three different sections?
3: Yes, it's divided into three sections, and that correlates to the to the sort of three areas that I just kind of laid out. So. You'll, you'll see on one side of the board is the tactical area where uh, one of the Soviet players would be controlling, or you know, if you're playing cooperatively. Then in the middle is where the German um, troops are assaulting the house. And in the far right side, you've got the operational, so sort of a zoomed-out view of Stalingrad with all the different elements that are supporting the defense of the building.
0: Cool. Okay, I see. Um, what else? I think I'm out of questions, honestly. What what else should... Uh back or gamers know people know
3: the, the only other thing i would say um so there's gonna be people that probably listen to this and they're like oh, okay that's cool you know it sounds like a good game i should look into that i will say that the reason you probably would want to back it instead of waiting for it for retail is there's a couple of things that are um well there's one thing that i think is really important it's, it's a kickstarter exclusive and it's the companion book that i wrote to go along with the game that's, i meant to actually yeah. that.
0: so you wrote the book
3: yeah, so I wrote the book. It's basically the result of all the research that went into the game. Um, and you know, there's nothing, I would say that there's nothing earth shattering in the book. You're not going to find some great discoveries about Stalingrad at, at large for sure. You know, it's just a, it's a primer for Stalingrad. Um, but like I mentioned before, it's really, really, really difficult to kind of dig through all of the propaganda. And, and sort of bad Western reporting on Pavlov's house. There's not a lot of good original English language um, research. So it, there is a section on in there specifically where I talk about kind of getting through a lot of that myth and really setting the story straight on, on what happened during the battle um, because there's just a lot of perpetuated sort of inconsistencies. So I think it really helps if, if you're into that, if you're into the historical background for a game, uh, I wouldn't want people that uh, to miss out on that book. So I think that's the, that's the most interesting. and it's, since it is a Kickstarter exclusive, once the campaign's over, you know it's, it's probably going to be unavailable.
0: Wow, okay and and uh, reading the description it, to me, it sounds like it's a sort of like an Osprey book in size and format.
3: Yeah, it's – I mean, right now it's 44 pages. That it probably – it could get reformatted when it goes to print depending on how exactly that gets, you know, set up. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of – I put tons of maps in there. Um, there's actually uh, – on the Kickstarter page I've linked to um, to the, the draft book. So you can actually just download the PDF and look through it and, you know, see what it looks like inside. But, yeah, there's tons of maps and appendices about, you know, every single guy that was in the building and what their rank was and their job, all that sort of, you know, detail is in there.
0: I don't think we talked about it. I said I was out of questions and I did didn't I, um, Pavlov's house is named after somebody that was in the house, right? I, I you know, immediately the name triggers Pavlov's dog, right? The famous oh, dog. Of course. The train. Yeah.
3: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, so it's named after, um, Yakov Pavlov, who was a sergeant in, and, and he led uh, the storm group. So storm groups were something that the Soviets developed during Stalingrad largely, where they would send in small groups of guys and take buildings, right? So he led the storm group that took the house from the Germans originally. But this is – I'll give you an example of what I talk, what I mean by the myths, right? So if you go to almost any place, if you just Google Pavlov's house, what you're going to get told is, hey, he led the defense of Pavlov's house, etc. And the reason for that is – At the time, the Soviets wanted to use this as a piece of propaganda. And so they basically said that a sergeant led the defense of this house for a couple of months. And it was a small group of like 24 guys. So in truth, he really led the defense of the house for like a day or two. And then a a lieutenant came in and the lieutenant led the defense for two months. Um, So, I mean, it's that sort of stuff that and also we have to talk about things like you know they held the house for 58 days and what actually happened is the soviets um the this, the army that was in charge of stalingrad told the guys who were defending pavlov's house to attack another building and most of them were either injured or killed so it's not that they defended the house for 58 days it's that most of the guys were killed and then re- reinforced so it's just things like that you know and, and all that's in the in the book but yeah, it was named after
0: a sergeant. That's fascinating. Um it, you know, I, I don't know a lot about the Battle of Stalingrad. I I listened to a Dan Versen, no, Dan Verzin, I'm sorry, Dan Carlin podcast on the subject. It was fascinating. Um But from what little I know, it doesn't sound like the story is is actually necessarily unique. It sounds like a lot of the type of battle that was happening in Stalingrad. It's just that somehow this one became mythical and famous.
3: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean there's tons of other examples of Things that are you know, were similar to this, that just just took on the sort of mythic proportions that yeah, you know, the Soviets—that's what they were doing, right? They were using propaganda for their own purposes at the time. So,
0: well, okay, um, I th- I guess this is my final thing. The game is on Kickstarter right now. It ends on uh, when's it end?
3: I think it's September se- September twenty second, Celeste.
0: last day. You could get the game for forty dollars US. Is that plus shipping?
3: Uh, no, so it's $40 is the backer level and then whatever the shipping is. So I think it's $15 ship dollars, uh, shipping to the U.S.
0: Okay. And for $100, you could back it. There's a few left where you could get your picture on a counter, which is pretty cool. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Like, you know, So I was surprised that a lot of people have, have really um, taken advantage of that. So that's cool.
0: Yeah, it's tempting. Um, is yeah. it just your picture or is it like your name too? Or No. So
3: you can – right now, uh, we, we've got to finalize this. So it's definitely your picture and your name. And then we got to figure out how we're going to determine which type of counter you're assigned. Right now, we're just thinking we're just going to let people pick whatever they want. So you basically say, do you want to be an anti-tank rifleman or a or machine gunner or a sniper or whatever? And we'll just assign you the stats and the value
0: accordingly. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, uh, I'd say good luck, but, I mean, congratulations. It's already funded. I, I just hope it keeps going up and up. looks really neat. Yeah, thanks. I really
3: appreciate it. It's been a good chat with you about it.
0: Alright, yeah, you too. So, so I hope everybody enjoyed the interview. I really had a great time doing it. Um, I'm still confused. Where do the dogs come into play? <laughs> it, they don't. It's a game for people. Pavlov's dogs. It, no, his house. His house. Sorry, is, just his house. What happened to the Pavlov's dogs? They, it was a war game. They got shot. I'm sorry. You shot the dogs. <laughs> ah, so anyway, <laughs> I, you know what? Right after the interview, after recording the interview, I went and backed the game. I, re- good job, I really enjoyed it. It sounds really good. I couldn't help, it. especially that uh, that stretch go for the uh, the book, telling you about the uh, Pavlos House and all that, all the history behind it. Probably make
1: more sense if I could actually say something sensible about the kickstart instead continue to reference Pavlov's you dogs. you know
0: it is a war game so
1: oh god never mind <laughs>
0: run away you know <laughs> come to think of it in the interview we talked about how you were giving me a hard time the episode before
1: <laughs> why what did I do um
0: wait when, when you apologize oh, for being mean to me
2: <laughs> oh yeah that,
0: yeah because he said uh, he said oh that was so funny because I told him Man, I'm such an amateur with this audio thing. He says, "No, it's great. I love the podcast. Like that that thing where Julius apologized to you was so funny." Um. So, Albert, do you consider Nemo's
1: War to be a war game? It's got war. In the it's title. got. It
0: does have. war. And you know what? I think it's a, it, the rule book is sort of like a war game rule book. Oh, is it? You think I so? Do, I think the layout is yeah. So yeah, I'd say it's a war game. Absolutely. Dang it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go
1: ahead and talk a little bit more about Nemo's War then, shall we?
0: All right. Let's do that. Let's get into it. Um, the The game we're talking about is Nemo's War, right? This game you get to be Captain Nemo, right, from the Nautilus, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Twenty
1: Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which
0: is a story, if you don't know, written by Jules Verne in eighteen sixty nine. And it's an adventure uh, when this man gets sunk. He's in a ship. It gets sunk. By a submarine, which I thought was a sea monster, because they've never seen submarines. And he gets rescued by the submarine, and they go on this big adventure all over the world. It's not that
1: they've never seen Sub- submarines. Submarines did not exist at that time.
0: I don't, yeah, I don't think they did, right? And No, they did yeah, not exist. Yeah, and that's the thing. But they got sunk by the submarine, so he thought it was a sea monster. But it really was a submarine. Okay. So anyway, the, the game is based on that novel, which is, I think, a fantastic adventure story. Okay. Um... Actually, I Let covered the original. This is a second edition of the game. It was kickstarted right a couple years ago, and it just finally came out in the last couple months. I actually covered the original edition way, way back in episode number twenty. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, if if you want to go s- s- hear that first, you know, we'll wait for you. I'm not gonna go. I back recommend you
1: don't. I wasn't there back then.
0: <laughs> you know, I sounded like an, there
1: was no one to rain in. I yeah, was...
0: and, and that was before before I started sounding so professional like I do now. So, <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, actually, actually, you know, it was a good episode because there was also an interview with um, I interviewed Tom Decker, which had designed a, a few games for the uh, for Victory Points game, and then also talked about the States of Siege games in general. So, I thought it was a really interesting episode. I've enjoyed that one a lot. So, anyway, welcome back from listening to that. If you did go hear it, if not, I'm glad you stayed. So that was a summary about the game, as well, a bit of a tangent
1: well let's go ahead and summarize the basic mechanics of the game uh in nemo's war your goal is to not fall to one of various failure conditions this is one of those games that has a very limited way to win and multiple ways to lose you lose if any of the three primary resources of the ship that is nemo himself your hull or your crew should ever become completely depleted you lose if there's ever not the ability to have an extra ship come out during the board during the placement phase which happens each round or you lose if you aren't able to accumulate enough points by the end of the game.
0: You also lose if your nor- notoriety maxes out at the track.
1: Yes, which is different for each type of game that you're playing. But yes, if you also... Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> I don't need to repeat it. The way to win is by ensuring that you get enough points over the course of the game. Each round, you start by pulling out one of the events cards which will have you do a test or keep it or play it or accelerate the difficulty of the game. After you do that you will roll some dice in order to place out more ships on the boards. Uh, The different dice will tell you which ocean it is that the ships are coming from and also you can take the differential between the two dice in order to figure out how many action points you have during the round. You will then use those action points to do Various and sundry things, from repair your ship or your crew, to go on adventures, or to sink ships. After you finish all your actions, you reset to the next round, and you will keep going through that whole thing until, essentially, you get through the entire deck of adventure cards. After you do that, you do the finale. If you haven't lost by that point in time, you will total up your score. Hopefully, you'll get better than a defeat score level, and win.
0: Mm-hmm. It's that simple. The... um and the game is very much a point Sally. There's tons of ways to get victory points in this game. You know, you get victory points for just about everything. Um mm-hmm. and and as many victory points as you get. Oh gosh, you still got to get a ton to win. Uh, the last game I played I had 228 victory points. And it was it was not a win at all.
1: That is higher than I've scored <laughs> to
0: date. It was a uh, an inconsequential score at the end. An inconsequential game which hurts
1: <laughs> when i total it up every time. <laughs> it's like
0: i made it through it i made it through the whole thing and i still
1: got defeated because i don't have enough points or i made it the whole thing i just barely scraped by and i got it inconsequential i'm like
0: oh come on <laughs> you're kidding me anyway. that was a major victory just reaching the end
1: <laughs> yeah. but we'll get back to that in a moment let's make sure that we're trying to go in order from our little rubric here
0: so why don't you tell me about the rules Albert so the, the rule books I think are, are very wargaming in style the layout, the way they're organized and numbered are very very much like a traditional war game very much like a typical victory points game rule book um, I found them very clear to read Easy, you know. the, the first time through I was a little bit lost a little slow but there's a lot to it um, but by the time I play the second game, was super fast.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot to the game because each action has multiple different modifiers for the dice. You're going to be rolling a lot of dice in the game. And so every time you roll the dice, there's a list of things that can modify your values. And yeah, there's diff- there's, I think it's eight different action possibilities. But all of it is printed on the board. So unlike with most, most games where I want to see, you know, a concise reference in the rules. In this one, it was much more helpful just to have it all printed on the board. I really liked that. Mm-hmm, yep. That, that made the rules really easy to keep referencing. Yeah, that's the right. The only time, after the, after the first time, I really only ever pulled out the game to figure out how to set up the event deck. And there is such a beautiful graphic for how you set up the event deck, right on the rules, that makes it so easy to do it. It was
0: great. Yeah, that's right. The first time you, you kind of read through it and, and you fumble through it and and all that. After that, it's just super easy. Just look at the picture; you know exactly what to do. The uh-huh. and the whole rule book is like that. It it's got a sidebar in every page, and the sidebar either has some history or some history or flavor text or or examples or, or little notes on how to do stuff without having to read things in depth. And I found that very very nicely done and very very usable.
1: Yeah, the only problem I had with that is that there's a couple rules in the sidebar that aren't mentioned anywhere else and that aren't mentioned on the board. For example, how much damage you take when something goes wrong, right? So for many of the tests you if you exert a resource, which means that you gamble with a resource in order to get Uh, benefit towards your dice that resource so you lose that resource in addition to whatever bad effect there is but when you're doing some when you're doing battles it's different
0: Mm -hmm. you you get attacked and you, you roll two dice and you take if you fail you take damage based on your lowest number right
1: right and if it's if it's a one well no it's no 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 but this is oh, hold it just a second it's not just when you're doing battles though it's every single time if it's a one so you lose one of those resources if it's a two or higher so then you lose two of those resources
0: I was, okay I totally missed that rule I didn't I never saw it in the sidebar
1: Yeah, it's under results for when you're exerting results. If you fail the test or your attack fails or your test action result has a red title, you lose an amount of each ship resource type wagered. This amount is equal to one if the result of the lowest die roll for the test was a one or two if the result of the lowest die roll for the test was any other result.
0: Uh, Okay, you know, I totally missed that. I'm kind of glad I did. (laughs) Because <laughs> I only ever right, lost it one.
1: It, it makes it a lot harder because <laughs> that rule means that you start jumping down much
0: faster. Gosh, yeah, and right. and so you don't want to commit resources sometimes.
1: You don't want to commit resources, but you really have to. I always was. Yeah, just about. Very rarely was I not committing ship resources, but you know for example when I'm doing when I'm doing an attack or when I'm getting damaged by attack I want to roll a one because even if someone if one of the warships is attacking you so the amount of damage they do to you is based on the lowest number they roll so I want them to I want to fail big so that they do less damage to me
2: Mm mm-hmm
0: gosh yep
1: but all of that is not mentioned in the sidebar it's not mentioned very clearly it's not on the board and I wish it had. I wish it had.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, another thing, I, sometimes I, I wish the rule book had an index. It doesn't. But even though it didn't, I always found it pretty easy to find the right section in the rules whenever I need to go reference them. So, so there is no index, but I didn't find it a big issue. Did you, did you notice the, the missing index or table I of contents? I
1: did I did notice – well, I would have preferred if on each page it would have said this is Rule 1 or Rule 2 because a lot of the times – a lot of times the book says refer to Rule 10 or refer to Rule 12, and I would go, oh, wait, which – where is where is Rule 12? <laughs> is there a table of contents to let me find Rule 12? I'll just flip through and find Rule 12.
0: Yeah. It's not too hard because the numbers are in order.
1: They are. Yes, that is true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but they don't necessarily correlate to the page. Yeah,
1: that is true. But it would have been easier to find it. It would have been easier to find it if it had had on the top corner, hey, this is rule 12 or something
2: like that. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the one time I was looking for, for rule 10 and I went to page 10 and I couldn't find it. It took me a little while to figure out what it actually meant. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm giving you a hard time, but it, re- no, it really was a little bit tricky. Yeah.
1: Um, but mm-hmm. overall, the rulebook is pretty good. Yep. I think that there are some things which could have been better. Um, you know these facts that I we're bringing up, but overall, the rule book was pretty good in my
0: opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think we're just looking for stuff to complain about at this point.
1: I mean, here's the I'm, when when something is really good, and there's those couple minor flaws, they tend to kind of stick out. Yeah,
0: you're right. That's true. You're right. Um, so the theme. Have you read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? In high school. In high school, okay. Do you did you enjoy it? Do you remember?
1: Uh, yes okay. um, well are you asking if I enjoyed it or if I remembered it
0: yes both
1: <laughs> double question <laughs> um, I read it I did not enjoy okay. it Okay.
0: a lot of people don't enjoy it because a lot of the book is reading about fish and types of fish and all the different fish he sees in the ocean it goes into a lot of detail about that Um. most people find that part boring I think if they cut that out of the book it would be a lot better the the game I think covers the theme pretty well except for the fish so so if you're somebody really enjoyed the fish section this game's not for you otherwise i think this game is a really good fit with a theme
1: how recently did you read the book that you remember it's not a lot of fish
0: um probably about five years ago i've read it a few times i've I've enjoyed it a lot and i don't mind the fish
1: so apparently you like the book yes
0: i do like the book absolutely (laughs) no no nemo's war Okie dokeys the other game. The <laughs> the um, so the theme, the reason I think it's well implemented is because the the game has a deck of cards, right? You already mentioned each card correlates to a chapter in the in the book, and each as a matter of fact, each card is a title from one of the chapters. Um, what really? Mm-hmm, yep. So if you set the cards in order, you could basically instead of doing a random adventure, you could reenact the the story a little more closely that way.
1: Really. Mm-hmm. Which is which is pretty huh. neat. Yep, that's cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, that is neat. Um, when you play normally, you shuffle up the cards, and it's so it's different every time in random. But if you wanted a more historical or or literary version, I was going to say this is fiction. <laughs> yeah, I, what is it called? A Literary version? I don't know. More true to the book, whatever. <laughs> representative. Yeah, representative. So so it does fit the theme well. However, it does deviate, I think, because you know. For example, when you start, you get to pick from four different uh, motivations, and you know, that really wasn't in the book, I think. He, he sort of did all four. He had all of them. He, he sort of did, but <laughs> yeah, but you didn't pick one. And so I, I, to me, I feel that's like a little bit of a Of course a you didn't book.
1: pick one, because most people aren't just one motive. <laughs> yeah. It's a game.
0: You're right. It is a game. But it does fit well, I think, overall.
1: Right. <laughs> You know, you can really when you can talk about what he was doing at all those times, and talk about what his his final motive was, especially since in the course of the game he can switch between one of them during Act 3
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And I get the feeling that's a it's a key strategy if you know how to play this game well, which I, it sounds like you and I don't. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I assume if you're going, your game is not going the way you hope You might be able to switch to the strategy that you actually seem to be scoring best against. That,
1: that may require more dynamic scoring. We may get to that later. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so let's let's move on from the theme to the components.
1: Sure. Let me actually just mention this dynamic scoring for a second. One component that the game provides for you are a whole bunch of little scoring tokens for all the different things, and. If you want, during the course of the game, you can keep track of your scores every single time. Every single time you earn a point, you can keep track of it on the little scoreboard, okay? Mm-hmm. Have you tried doing this already? No, right? no, no, no way. way. No way, okay. I did try doing it. It's super fiddly.
0: Yeah, I bet it is.
1: There's like It's also super depressing.
0: 20, <laughs> there's like 20 different markers, I guess, you're moving each time you... Pretty much each time you you play a card, you may end up having to score it. Each time you get a treasure or sink a ship, you're going to be scoring it. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be happening constantly throughout the game. It's just more effort than I want to do.
1: It does. It's a lot of effort, and it really just sort of breaks the flow because it's a lot of bookkeeping. And for me, having done it once, I didn't play particularly well that time. And I could see that I was not playing well that time. When I'm playing otherwise I get to the end of the game and I go, okay I made it through there. How much points did I get in the end? (laughs) Oh, I lost anyway. (laughs) But when I'm scoring it, as I'm going, I can see I'm losing. I'm losing. I'm losing. I may think I'm winning, but I'm losing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That that sums it up pretty well. (laughs) So
1: the the dynamic scoring tokens. That would be great if it were an app that can tell me that, but I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. That's really what that comes down to. So all those are just sitting in a bag at this point in time, and they will probably never
0: come out of that bag.
2: Yeah,
1: Unless I'm playing multiplayer and I can just sort of stick somebody else and I'm like,
0: your job is scoring. Uh, you know that's not a bad idea. And, you know, I bet you if you've played the game 20 or 30 times, then you have a, a really strong sense of, of things and, and keeping track of the score may be a lot easier and more useful at that point. It
1: may Hmm. be if I want to become a professional Nemo's war player. Hmm, There you go. (laughs) Professional.
0: (laughs) It's a good career there. Um, (laughs) so, okay. Besides, besides that, the rest of the components I think are fantastic. There's a little plastic submarine, a little Nautilus. Um, the, there's great cards. Everything's cardboard. It brings two because of the Kickstarter, I don't know if every copy brings it or just the Kickstarter editions, but there's a little wooden notoriety marker and a wooden every action copy. marker. Okay. Um, and they're just great. All the components are really neat. There's all these little extra components that may or may not get used depending on which event cards get drawn. Um, mm-hmm. And there's cardboard
1: punch-outs for each of those. And I assume you have no problem with the cardboard punch-outs in comparison to the earlier laser-printed, right?
0: N- no, these are great. So, so I used to have all the right. old edition, right? The... It wasn't the laser printer edition. It was pre-laser printing stuff. Um, uh, the card, the counters were fine. The cards were terrible. They were hard to shuffle. They were hard to draw and whatnot. These are so much better. Um, it was a paperboard. This is mounted, which I, I enjoy more. I, some people prefer paperboards. I, I definitely prefer mounted. Um, and then the artwork is just much nicer. The so yeah, overall, I think the components are fantastic. The artwork is awesome. The, I have two issues. Well, I have one issue. Other people have a second, apparently. I I just
1: want to say, by the way, the artwork is really great. Yeah. They went over the top on the artwork. Especially there's a book of epilogues where you can look through it with big, full. It's almost a full 8.5 by 11 piece of art for each possibility of your win. So that's all four motives and all five different levels of victory each one of them has a full page piece of art and you can sort of see how i'm not sure if, if they took a background and a foreground and mixed and matched or something like that to maybe cut down on art costs but it looks really nice and that same quality with the art is copied over to every single aspect of the game each of the cards has a unique piece of art each of the four motive. Uh, board tokens has a unique piece of art each of the ships has a unique piece of art
0: mm-hmm. and the ship art. art is those little counters if if there's real art for that ship and then what it look like that counter matches the, the real ship historical ship because many of these ships are all historical most of them are i think mm-hmm. and that's most pretty of them neat.
1: are many of them are and if they're not historical they're in reference to something historical yep or they're fantastic like the season, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which is neat. It's so, you know, it's funny you mentioned the, the epilogue book because that's the one thing I was going to complain about. I kind of don't like it. I mean, I think it's really cool. But what? to me, the style doesn't match the rest of the game.
1: What do you mean it doesn't match the rest because of
0: the game? Because that book is, is uh, monotone, right? It's, it's one color ink on white paper or sort of like yeah. a parchment-y sort of kind of paper. The Everything yeah. else is full color. And so for me, it's sort of a little bit jarring. It looks fantastic on its own, it, with the rest of the game, it sort of doesn't match. And it's huge, <laughs> which is, it is huge. which I appreciate, it's huge. It's but that's surprising. Yeah, it's a whole extra rulebook, and it's mostly for the art,
1: right? Which it's, is cool. It's, into, it's only for the art, and it's for a little bit of story on the bottom about how will you? Yeah, do. a
0: small paragraph. It, it for
1: me, it goes in the category of delightfully unnecessary. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I agree. It is. It is. I just, I every time I look at it. It, it it doesn't feel like it matches. the The other thing I uh-huh. wanted to mention is uh-huh. people have complained about the cards. I didn't have issues with it. But Apparently, sometimes the cards, the colors don't quite match from one card to the next, and and so people have issues where where you could recognize cards by the the back. I haven't noticed. That. Yeah, I haven't noticed. I did notice what, one time I said, "You know, this card looks a little bit different," but it didn't matter to me. Didn't bother me. Um, but if you look for it, it was noticeable and so I've heard that people have an issue with that and there's no guarantee that within a game all your cards will look the same apparently that's something that v- Victory Point Games has said but huh? I wonder why that happened who knows yeah right um, and I'm sure it's an issue they'll figure out and resolve in future games but it's there Um, and if it bothers you you know it might be an issue Um. anyway other, yeah, other than that the only, fantastic. I mean
1: the only other issue I had is that with the bold attack and the stealth attack, um, on the bold attack side of it, it's perfectly lined up, and on the reverse side, it's not perfectly lined up. But that is so hard to get done perfectly mm-hmm. whenever you're doing any sort of drift printing.
0: Uh, I do remember hearing people complain about that. I don't think I had issues with that. If I have, I didn't notice it.
1: Mine happens to be off, Okay, but eh, it's, good. it's good
0: enough. I can tell what it says. Mm-hmm. Don't, I Personally, I don't use that counter that much anyway. I use it sometimes. Why not? Um, I just don't need it. You know? Oh.
1: For me, I have to use those counters because otherwise I will find myself cheating, is the honest truth. <laughs> because I will say, okay, I'm going to attack. Drat. I'm
0: short one. I did a stealth attack. <laughs> I really did not, but I did a stealth attack. <laughs> yeah, I've been very tempted to do that a few times. I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. That's not fair. You know, and it depends. I, I definitely have cheated it before in other games, I haven't in this one yet. I think. I might have. I don't remember for sure. But, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see where you're coming from. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, so that's why I want to have all the counters out. <laughs> Same with I, I try and keep up with am I actually pushing for and pushing not. Sometimes I'll forget, especially if I'm like, okay, we're doing crew and crew and crew and crew again and more crew. So we'll just keep <laughs> exerting the crew each time. And I try and always push it in and push it back and push it in and push it back because that one time where I lost – I'll be like, okay, wait, was I actually betting crew on a roll of a
0: 10? (laughs) But I actually have done that.
1: So, yeah,
0: yeah, it's funny. Yeah. So, so we probably should keep moving on because this is already a little bit of a long episode, but I do want to say one more thing. There are a lot of components. Um, it does mean the setup takes a little bit of time. I don't find the setup bad. I I find the teardown is, is more difficult. I don't know about you. I don't think that's so. No, the,
1: the only thing for me i have a big bag with all of the and i believe the kickstarter came with a bag for it but mm-hmm. not the kickstarter but i have a bag of all the ships so spread those out and sort them out and grab out all the white ones and the yellow ones put them back in the bag sort out all the ones by their color and put them in all their designated places because all the places have colors on the board and, and shuffle up the deck and build the event deck yep which again looking at the rules. It's shuffle up the deck and build the event deck, and then as because when I'm playing through the game, I pull out and set aside the act and the finale cards. So those are already on the side. Shuffle it up, deal, shuffle, shuffle again. Setup doesn't take me very long. No,
0: well, the uh, what I'm complaining about is the sorting of the ships, which to me is seems a little bit tedious and long because there's a bunch of ship counters. There must be about know, sixty okay. or so, and I don't know. Maybe maybe just it is, it is a
1: bunch, but I haven't really had that problem, especially okay. since with the white ones, those are easy to find. Yep. you can tell which ones those are. So if you just do all the white ones first, and then just spread out all the rest and, and start flipping, I don't know. I haven't had much difficulty.
0: Okay, well, that was just wanted to say that anyway. So there we go. It is a lot of stuff, no matter what, which is it again is. neat. I like that. Yes. So gameplay. Should we talk about gameplay? Sure. Can oh. I say something first? Oh. <laughs> so I, I think the game is really fun. I really enjoy the game. I really enjoy exploring the oceans and all that and going through the event decks. Um, The the one thing that, I, that playing this game makes me think of is it feels like a typical victory point game. My experience, victory point games usually have a deck of cards. Each time you draw a card, it has some sort of event that you have to deal with, and then you do a lot of dice rolling. And that's exactly what this game is like. And to me, it feels very typical VPG, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of dice rolling in this game. Just about every single time you do a test or any sort of action, you have to roll a dice. And you're actually rolling two dice, which means for all those of us who are, you know, Seasons Catan players, we know that you're really likely to roll a seven and. The farther away from 7 you get, the least likely it is. Mm-hmm. So you're really likely to roll a 7. And so each time you're rolling a test, you're pushing up one of your resources, you're spending something, to try and get that test. Because many things, you you want to get a 10 or better to really succeed. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. That's, that's probably a good average. So you're trying to always push for things. But if you roll poorly, you're just out. Yeah. <laughs> you have a couple emergencies, but you, know, you sort of just have to deal with with those bad things as they come. But until you start hitting those bad things, because there's a lot of dice rolls, until you start hitting those bad things, the game just sort of goes pretty easy breezy. Similarly, when there's not very many ships on the board, the game just goes pretty easy breezy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, once once the board starts getting crowded, it slows down a little bit each turn. But I didn't think too much. But no matter what, there's always dice rolling every turn. You know, yeah. At the beginning of turn, you're going to draw an event card. That might cause you to roll dice. Um, then you have to roll dice to, to see what ships you play, and then you take your actions, and most, if not all, your actions require rolling dice. I think they all now, do.
1: Now, because there's so many dice rolls, and because it's two dice at the same time, so it still has that margin around seven, and you can push it and you have the emergencies, it didn't feel like it was too random. No. I don't think. It did feel... a. F- it did feel fairly random and when the dice wanted to start hating on me by rolling double ones all the time which can be cataclysmic failures to make you do a bunch of damage um that that can just hurt the game that that cataclysmic failure i don't know why they made it into in, in the game where if you roll double ones all of a sudden you're just taking a ton of damage
0: Mm-hmm. yeah what i, I do is i just don't there. roll double ones I'm not quite sure how you do that. <laughs> I, I use one-player guild dice. I replace a dice a game with a game with one-player guild dice.
1: And so you're saying you, whenever you roll the one players,
0: you just get a rerolls. <laughs> up there. Yeah, they're free rerolls. Doesn't everybody use them that way? <laughs> no, actually, I didn't get any. I haven't gotten any double ones in the game. But I've gotten double sixes a few times. I just got lucky this game. But you know, yeah, I've gotten double. I've gone a couple of games where I've gotten double ones three or four times oh, in a game. Ugh. But here's here's the thing: the game you, you, you mentioned it. it's random because you're rolling dice, and and there's ways to to make it easier by by uh, spending crew and stuff like that. And as long as everything's going well and you're succeeding in your rolls, it's fine. But the second you fail few rolls, it becomes catastrophic because suddenly those crew that you're spending. To give you bonuses, yeah, they're not working as well. Your die roll modifier goes from a 3 to 2 to 1, and and that really hurts. Yeah. And and you got to deal with that. So now you
1: have to run away, lick your wounds, heal up, and come again. In the meantime, all the ships and the seas are starting to fill up, Mm -hmm. and that may not be so easy at that point in time. So for me, the beginning of the game just feels really easy breezy. And, you know, I sit down, i am enjoying a game, and this is easy. And then things start to go wrong. I'm like, okay, this is getting a little bit difficult. Well, how do I do this? How do I start fixing it? By the end of the game, inevitably for me, it's like, oh, God, now what do I do? I'm going to die if we don't end the game now. What do I do?
0: Yeah, I find the end stressful. I, I do, yes. but I find it a fun stressful, don't get me wrong. But, boy, it is stressful. Yes, More than agreed. most other games.
1: And just to make sure it's clear, by the way, even though there's a lot of dice rolling, since it's an action selection game primarily, so you have to figure out what actions you can do that are going to give you the best chance for results, the best chance for getting the most amount of victory points. And it could be adventuring, it could be taking down ships, it could be whether you want to do salvage or tonnage, which is getting points or upgrades. So there's a lot of different selections you get to make separate from the dice rolls about how you are sort of trying to curate your game towards success and unlike with some other games that are pure randomness there have been some games that it's literally if i roll well i do well if i don't i don't with this one i have a feeling that even if i were to roll tens every single time literally every single time I wouldn't get one of those triumph successes if I don't know how to use my actions well to get the
0: maximum amount of victory points. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Yeah, because you need to to figure out what actions you want to do, and it a lot of depends on what your motivation is that you've chosen for the game. Right? Because it's, true. If you play uh, an exploration motivation, you want to do a lot of science and stuff like that. And a lot of. Exploring you have to know
1: where that science comes from and so how to balance it with mm-hmm. taking out shifts a little bit when you need to and then reduce that with insights and how to run the right balance of all those things. Yep.
0: Absolutely. Um, Is there something else I want to mention? Uh, uh,
1: uh, it's also a very long game. I think the box gives an estimate of 90 minutes. For me, this is one of those times when I've really been wishing I had like a board game table um, where I could sort of pause the game and come back to it because the game is, feels very pausable. Each round feels relatively short because you take the event, you do the placement, you do your actions, and you keep doing that. There's a big deck of events. And being able to pause when I'm getting tired either because there's been so many stressful decisions and because I'm really feeling under the gun or just simply because it's going so long, I'd love to be able to pause this game. Mm-hmm. And so it has felt really long for me.
0: Yeah, And it is a game that you could pause easily too. I mean, if you have that opportunity or that luxury, right? Yeah, you, this is the sort of game you can
1: pack up easily though.
0: Packing up would be hard. Too many bits. Yes, but but it, But if you leave the game, like I was playing tonight and I – we paused for dinner, and I came back, and it's easy to to continue. And if you finish a turn up, next turn you're just gonna draw a card and start over. And I think it's very, very tactical, not a lot of long-term strategy necessarily. So it's easy to to leave for an hour or two and come back and figure out what you want to do next. Right. So yeah, it, it doesn't but let itself. If you're tonight. the sort
1: of person who's looking for slow games for short, you know, e- easy to think through, this is not one of
0: yeah I'd agree I'd say I don't know how long the the game I played today took me I'd say it was between 90 and 120 minutes but I'm not sure yeah. the first game was definitely much longer that was probably well, three yes, hours it's that's, that's a learning game and even
1: <laughs> like I'm saying even now even when I feel you know confident at the rules it's still taking me you know still two hours or so to play through
2: mm-hmm
0: yep um So there's a couple mechanics I want to mention that I really enjoyed in this game. And then I think I am done. We should really wrap up. Um, Yes, sir. (laughs) I like the action point, the way they calculated each turn. Each turn you're going to get a random number of action points. You're going to roll dice to figure out where the ships get placed. And the difference between your die rolls, between the high and the low, is how many actions you get. Um, Why did you like that? I I just find that novel. And then once you start adding extra dice and you actually have choices to make for that, that makes it really interesting right?
1: yeah that makes it much more interesting later on in the game which is one reason why I tend to pick I I tend to pick anti-imperialism because I feel like that's one of the types that gives that the longer version of it Mm -hmm. a longer version when you have three dice Mm -hmm.
0: yep I also like the event deck I I, I like that like I have already mentioned it's a classic VPG mechanic I just like how each turn you draw a card and it's only going to change the flavor or the feel of that turn or potentially can Oh, and just just neat. I love the idea of committing the resources, spending your crew and whatnot, and that's just great because you know it's a, it's sort of a pusher luck there, kinda. And and I like that we didn't mention them at all. But you have five or six crew counters, and these people are sitting here. These are like the characters from the book, like uh, Ned Land and Kanseil and the professor. I forget his name. And if you don't, Aranax. yeah, Aranax. If you don't do anything with them, they're victory points at the end of the game. But at some, but they all can be sacrificed. You, you basically, that person did a heroic action of some kind, and they'll give you a bonus. It could be a, a die roll modifier, or a free reroll, or some extra actions, or whatever. And I, I just find that really neat because it's very thematic. So I think that's it for me. I love this game. Great game. I I waited years for the Kickstarter. I'm very happy. Happy with the what I got. <laughs> I think it's pretty
1: good. I think the, the die rolls still can really hurt me and can just be disappointing. For me, I think the biggest disappointment is play through the game, feel like, man, I did great. I pulled through that and then told everything up and it's like inconsequential. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> Give me a little bit more than that. I made it through. I made it through. So for me, that's just, it. <laughs> I, I still really like the game and I'm continuing to push at the game and I'm continuing to really try for it. But if it continues to just keep telling me that I'm inconsequential,
0: I'm going to start getting annoyed with it. Do you understand me? (laughs) Go on BGG and look at some of the posts because you'll get some hints on how to play. I inadvertently read one today that that was very useful. Oh, that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll go read some strategy. Yep. So, all right, that's that's, uh, Finding Nemo. Thumbs up. Let's do it. I'm going to go play. All right. right. Uh, Actually, it's Nemo's War, but (laughs) that's all right.
1: Oh, you did it again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did it on purpose this time. All right, everybody. Have a good uh, couple weeks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you.
0: We'll probably cut that laugh out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, we will.
0: Yeah, I'm
1: going to kick out a cat. Wait, I thought I'm talking about dogs. What was that about cats?